This is the Banintree's Possibility Podcast, where we sit with changemakers and frontline disruptors and shift the direction of Compass to a world with brighter possibilities. The podcast features lives and works of some of the most incredible minds of our times, humans who have reclaimed the narrative, curated and created new ways of seeing life. We sit together and collectively envision the future of this planet 100 years from now. I'm your host and producer and an award-winning storyteller, Mukul Bhatia, currently speaking from Bali, Indonesia. Jumping straight in, let's introduce our first guest, Bandana Tewari. Bandana is one of the most authentic people I've had the honor of knowing, formerly the editor-at-large of Vogue India. Tewari is a prolific writer and speaker who has effortlessly narrated some of the most important stories about sustainability, propagated a whole new way, a slower way of traveling with intentions, and narrated Gandhian philosophy in context to a compassionate way of seeing fashion industry. She does it so effortlessly while being a living example of her everyday life, also in Bali, Indonesia. I'm smiling already, introducing Bandara. A big hearty welcome to my dearest friend. It's such a beautiful morning in Bali. How are you and how is your heart, Bandana? Thank you for having me, Mukul. I feel extremely privileged. I am extremely grateful. I'm grateful for many things, for these opportunities that come at very, very difficult times. Um, and grateful to be in Bali with you. Um, I'm in a very good state of mind, um, you know, despite COVID and all the very sad stories we tend to hear every day and clutter our mind. I do feel very grateful, as I'm sure you do, um, to be in a place where we have been quite shielded by the brutality of this virus and all the narrative that goes around it. And so, yes, I'm in a good place. I feel optimistic for a better world and changes that I envision collectively. It is indeed a bubble right here in Bali, right? It's almost like a doomsday narrative that we see and hear every day. But when you see the sunsets and sunrise in Mali, and you're just like, I think the world is okay and we are going in the right direction. There's a lot more possibility Absolutely. when I look around. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, you know, it's such a wonderful reminder that um, ultimately what we really need is this connection with nature. You know, that's why we feel so calm in Bali because we are surrounded by paddy fields and the incredible sunrises and sunsets. So that instant connectivity with Mother Earth is a healing thing. So we do, we are shielded because we are surrounded by nature. So it is traumatic imagining our friends who are living in apartments in urban cities right now. We can't even imagine what it must feel like to be not be able to walk out into a sunrise or sunset. So I think nature has been our biggest protector here in Bali. It really is true. I think that most people who grew up in the city, like I did, uh, do not have that sense of connection with nature. And I think it's a, it's a huge uh, opportunity lost. Uh, living in Bali and really accepting the harmonious philosophy that they truly follow and live by, it's been the most grounding and the happiest years of my life, despite COVID. But urban life in India is altogether different. Like It's a different reality all from the slow life of Bali. And I've seen you hold incredibly important spaces in your past life, living a very shining, glittering life as the ex-editor of Vogue India. I mean, I remember seeing you on national TV every week with some of the most important people in the fashion industry. And as I see you now, you've shifted your life completely. It's a 360-degree move, right? Um, and you follow a life of sustainability. And you really let go of a huge part of the world behind, a huge part of your life behind. Uh, what inspired this switch for you? Was there a frontier moment when you shifted this compass of possibility for yourself? Uh, was it a slow movement? Was it planned? Like, mm -hmm. how did that happen? 
You know, Mukul, it's um, as wonderful I feel now and grateful for the life I have here. The trajectory of me getting here wasn't very uh, beautiful. You know, it, uh, I did uh, arrive here, as a lot of us do, in Bali, running away from, uh, what do I call, you know, we want a systemic change in our lives. And so it is literally cutting yourself away from what you've always believed in, I've been comforted in in a different city, and mine was Bombay. And you're right, it was a vogue. And, um, it was a bundle of things, and certainly some were very, very personal. I was going through a horrific divorce that was never-ending. It was um, uh, demoralizing to be in a place where um, I just felt that my life was not in control because there's this whole patriarchal system that surrounded me. Um, that would not allow me the kind of freedom that I did want for myself. And that kind of, and I want to talk about patriarchy because um, it's one thing to say I don't like corporates and I don't like uh, certain familial systems or whatever it is, but we as women do get cowed down a lot in our lives by the systems that have been indoctrinated in us so for me, being in Bombay became stifling because uh, of a terrible marriage, a very patriarchal system that I was in. And to top it off, I was not getting disgruntled with my job at Vogue because I loved my job very much and I learned so much from it. It was just that living in India and living the other part of my fashion life, which was so excessively luxurious, so excessively wonderful, completely disconnected from what we see on the streets of Bombay. As you know, we've got, you know, millionaires' houses on one side and slums on the other, right? I mean, it couldn't be a more, a sort of a brutal place in many ways to live in because everything is out in the open. There is no hiding. You've got this whole dichotomy this visual narrative of the rich and the poor, the urban and the rural, the English and the vernacular, the dichotomy, this very bipolar life that we are very accustomed to living in India. And, you know, after a while, it starts hitting your conscience that um, that idea of privilege starts weighing on you. And I knew that all this cumulate, accumulated um, consciousness and realization and the frustration, I had to do something about it. I'm a single mom today. My daughter is 19 years old. At that time, she was 13, 14 when we left Bombay for Bali. So green school became a great excuse for us to make our departure. So she got enrolled in green school and I started living in Ubud with her. And, you know, that was just the catalyst but it was definitely an accumulation of many frustrations. And I knew that I couldn't go along this narrative again and again and the cyclical damage that I was doing to myself, to my consciousness. So moving away to Bali was the first step. And that changed everything for me. And when I say moving away, I mean, I gave away my life. I gave away my home. I gave away a gazillion Vogue goodies that I'd accumulated over years. I mean, when I think about that part of my life, it feels 
it was another me that was basking in all the glory of things and wonderfully designed clothes that added so much value, I thought, to my personal life. Um, I gave up all of that. You know, I donated, I gave to charity. I mean, I'm talking about leaving a massive house with, you know, it was, felt like a museum because I'm a maximalist. And came here to Bali on a rainy night with my daughter and three suitcases and began a life. So it was a drastic change in many ways with no one I knew particularly well here. And so it was rebuilding a beautiful, wonderful canvas that was supported by coconut trees and sandy beaches. So I have nothing to complain about. I feel like you're doing an incredible job on the island. You're doing some really good work. You, you, you're activating a lot of spaces around sustainability in fashion. And I feel like your life shift looks so meaningful and aligned to, to who you are at the moment. So I'm glad that happened yeah. for you. I'm, I'm glad that Bali offered this safe space. And it's, I know so many credible humans on the island who have found this sense of safe yes. space in Bali. And it's amazing how such a space could activate yeah. so many different levels of awakenings in humans. Yeah, I'll tell you what I found very fascinating. And, you know, I think Bali also teaches us to accept our own limitations mm. and our own faults, because whatever mm -hmm. happened in the lives that we wanted to leave, uh, there were two or multiple people who've played roles. And the, me, I was very much part of the, the destructive pattern that I was mm -hmm. in, emotional destruction, which I sort of uh, manifested on my own for to myself, right? So I remember when I landed in Bali and you're standing in a queue at the immigration, um, there was obviously a gentleman who's been living uh, for a while in Bali and you could see sort of the trepidation of a newcomer who's going to live there for a long time. And he said, so, so do you know Bali? And, you know, so you're going to live here now, right? I said, yes, I mean, I've come here as a tourist, but now I'm going to make it my home. And he says, watch out, darling, because Bali is an island of broken toys. <laughs> and while it sounded quite deathly and foreboding, for me, I found it very comforting. It meant that, you know, there are people like me who mm. sort of given up a certain part of the life to start afresh. And we've come here with many frustrations that we wanted to leave behind, uh, wanting to acknowledge that I, we need to make a, a shift in, in the patterns that we choose in the future. And so I felt comforted thinking, okay, you know, we are all on the same route and we've all somehow got a certain um, idea of why we are here, whether we are broken inside and we've come to heal or to regenerate and restart, reboot our lives. So I found it quite comforting hearing about the broken toys. As beautifully you described your cathartic journey, Bandana, I couldn't hold but smile on the true Balinese humor. The island of broken toys. <laughs> that is that is so true yeah, of know. Balinese humor. That is I know, so I imagined Obuk too, it. actually. I imagined uh, it, yes. <laughs> and lo and behold, what you know is it's far more healing. And it's amazing how your entire terminology changes, right? I mean... Not to sound too Ubudian, but uh, which, of course, listeners may not uh, know what an Ubudian is. It's, it's terrible because when we live here, we tend to stereotype different suburbs of Bali. And, and Ubudian is someone who's in great deep search and learns yoga and Ayurveda. And, you know, sometimes they get into a loopy place and then we, be, uh, we have a little bit of a joke about the loopy spaces that they go into. 
So it is Ubudian in the sense that your language changes when you live here, right? We do believe in words like interconnectivity. We believe in manifestations. We believe in the energy of the moon and the stars and the sun. And so, you know, it's very easy to uh, change that language because it's so comforting and nurturing. I remember being told, you know, by by my Bali family, my local Balinese family that you sort of adopt because they become such caretakers for you. That when I was going through a rough patch, even here, like just adjusting and you know, and you know, because we all have we're so used to instant change, instant gratification. So just by arriving in Bali and doing no work for yourself, that is like inner yeah. engineering for yourself, mm-hmm. you still think you you know someone owes you like the cosmic debt that you know, that something will work out for me miraculously without any work on your part. So those expectations fail you and then you get frustrated and you get even more frustrated because you're in Bali. How can you possibly be unhappy when you've got the bounty of nature around you and a comfortable life and what have you? And then the Balinese family, you know, she turns around to me and she says, but have you asked Bali Mama for permission? You are a guest here. You're a guest here. Have you asked for permission? Have you sat there in contemplation and asked for permission? So I remember going to the mother temple, the Baisaki temple, which is right under Mount Agung, the sacred Mount Agung, and sitting there and doing a small Balinese ceremony mm-hmm. and uh, asking for permission. So, you know, what happens with this? Where This is not a religious act for me. This is a spiritual act of connectivity. And so when you sort of, Think aloud and also engage deeply in these sentiments of acceptance, generosity, integrity, belonging. And it's almost a prayer to the universe for acceptance. Then the path opens up. I don't know if it is like the placebo effect. Whatever it is, it makes you feel good and comforted. And for me, that was enough. And I would go again and again to Baisaki Temple and sit there in prayer and thankfulness. So these little gestures is what makes life quite uh, wonderful and simple in Bali. And I'm sure you'll agree to this. I mean, I can't even agree more with you, Pandana. I mean, I feel like the island provides so many different opportunities of uh, life surprises. Uh, it's hard to narrate to someone for the outside and they'll probably judge you a little bit about being in a Bali bubble. But there is so many possibilities that await you in this island for growth, for healing, for seeing yourself with different patterns. And But we, we should hang, by the way. And yeah, just, absolutely. It's amazing how we as individuals and how we perceive our life and its purpose is a direct result of the land we walk on and the food we eat. Yeah. Uh, Bali offers this incredibly fertile land right. for self-awareness and I've seen my life and work shift yes. tremendously around here based on everyday stimulations yes. that I consume. What really, really worked for me in a very micro level, which I see the impact and the beauty of it now, is how I choose daily rituals in my life, which could be the most minute of things. And let me give you an example, because we live in Bali and for people who are listening, you literally wake up every day to the entire community, your neighbors, they are doing the offerings early in the morning and they do it three times a day. Mm-hmm. So it's a constant uh, evocation of prayers that you see around you with flowers. And if you watch the offerings that these wonderful 
young girls are doing in the morning in front of their homes, their temples, what have you, and the way they lift the flowers with this hand, they look like delicate angels, you know, waving those flowers to the universe. And each flower has a significance. The white flower or the yellow flower is Surya, the sun god. The white one is the moon goddess. And then, you know, there's one which is just you have to offer nothing. The idea that we, uh, it, everything mm. is empty. Now, when I say empty, not in a very Western perspective of emptiness, but we are no things. Like we are, we come from nothing and we go to nothing. There's absolute humility in accepting that um, we will be extinguished just as we blossom and that we will go into this beautiful uh, cosmic wonder of nothingness. So for me, as someone who particularly loves quantum mechanics and cosmology, it just baffles me, the simplicity of one gesture that in involves flowers and incense reminds me of these cosmic wonders, you know? So from a micro level, you can go on to a macro understanding and it fills me with so much joy because it's like this little... Uh, uh, sort of a dreamy realization that you have in spurts. And the more you believe in your daily rituals, as the, the Balinese do, uh, you know, the more fulfilling your day becomes. Mm -hmm. So just lighting your incense in the morning and listening to chantings, totally. and then you hear the Balinese offerings happening around you, and you can smell the incense from your neighbor's house, for instance. You know, it puts you in a beautiful acceptance of the day. So it's very different from waking up and watching Netflix, uh, God forbid, an episode of Squid Games, which can put you in a tiz, right? There's such a big difference. What you are going to ingest in your mind and your body in the morning, at least for me particularly, it defines the color of my day. And I know now that I'm perceptive to the sharp difference between when I do wake up with this sense of calm, aided by these little rituals, or if I wake up hungover and just to blind myself from thinking, I will watch uh, something ridiculous on my computer. And those two things really are drastic opposites to how I would spend that day. What do you think? What do I think? Um, okay, so for me, I think I've had this tremendously satisfying career in India and the rest of the world. And it took a lot of effort to create the ecosystem of life that I've created for myself. Uh, I mean, it's a billion people out there. So the idea of the rat race is quite true if you see it. And you really Correct. have to slog and get things done and see things differently and really work yourself out there to get out there as a brown person as well in the global world. So it all was real. And for me, uh, and most people in the city, living in compartment isn't a synthetic thing once you're in it. It's actually the normal. It's it, it's the standard. Uh, so Bali, on the other right. hand, with its philosophy of life, uh, the way it thinks of nature and the planet and humanity is one. And they really follow it. It isn't, it isn't just a philosophy, like everything from their like idea of politics, from their idea of uh, nature, yeah. from their art, everything is kind of interconnecting to the particular life philosophy so the human in humanity isn't a separate individual but one theoretically while it sounds obvious practically i've lived it in the last two years and that was something very special i had to let go of a lot of the patterns of me shrinking yes. my own self i love to that fit into the past life that i was creating and yeah bali really supported the idea of ultimate inclusion 
for me in this planet beyond I love that. the job beyond the xyz things or beyond the pretty things that i would want to buy i i i belong and i i think that sense of awakening that i am complete and i'm here and i'm full and i don't need to struggle <laughs> it's quite special i love that you know because we going to believe that we are all divine in the way that we've been created just like the tree and the flowers uh then you know i think we owe it to ourselves to also give it the same kind of respect and 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 you know you I, like when i wake up in the morning and i go for a walk to babakan where you know the, the paddy fields look like they're from ubud and you see the farmers tilling the land early in the morning and they're shooing away those little birds with these unique sounds that they make um you look at them and you realize that you know these are farmers some of them are like they're 90 years old they but they are so active in their fields you know this has got nothing to do with the age sure. and all the bullshit that we hear in our lives in our modern day lives and you literally see real time farmers in the paddy fields and you realize they speak a different language you know they don't even speak about it they actually live it this reciprocity of taking and receiving from nature you know it reminds me of this wonderful quote that says we don't stand on the land we are the land so th- this this kind of connectivity that i see with the farmers who are tilling their own land with their hard work with their hands and their feet what have you really makes you see that we are the land we stand mm-hmm. on so this was a very important uh, realization for me because it shifted my perspective about how i wanted to talk about the passion of my life right now and will continue to be so um on sustainability you know that um sustainability can't be a true language if we keep disconnecting mm. yeah. acts of sustainability as something sporadic that you do just once in a while it is understanding that sustainability is not just about buying a cotton t-shirt an organic t-shirt it is a way of life that we have to think like sustainable human beings and see how we can manifest that in practically everything that we do not in just in that moment where you have to make a choice between a polyester t-shirt and a organic t-shirt and there are what I love about your ideas and work around sustainability that it doesn't preach it reasons and your career or life path has gracefully defied and realigned your role you don't fit the part you make it your own especially as us as Asians and uh, Indians we have many roles and but for you in your writings or even in your everyday life on here on the island you've kind of made those roles yours in your own way in your own generatively mm-hmm. rebellious way if that's the word i love the word rebellious i kind of want to reclaim that word but i really want to give it to you cuz you're so re- beautifully rebellious mm-hmm. so how did that rebellious side of you unleash like was it always in you or is it something that you built along your career in your life path mm-hmm. I realize that if there's one thing that's common right from my childhood all the way to this point is that I was without sounding pompous I was born a maverick um it took me a long time to accept why I'm different why I sort of dance to an under tune mm-hmm. um but it's the very thing that saved me in the end so growing up for instance I grew up with a, a family we have four women now you know I'm number 2 mm. and so you grow up with the whole idea there's the second child syndrome 
where, you know, you are sort of destined to be different uh, because you are a second child. So it sort of perhaps it stuck me in my brain. Um, so it was always about breaking rules. Um, in the beginning, breaking rules was just to sort of assert my identity and my personality. So you almost deliberately break rules. So you're sort of signaling, signaling out to your family, especially that I am different, right? So by the time I'm at work, and I realize even as a writer in a big fashion mm -hmm. magazine like Vogue, I always was the one who would come up with very different ideas of how I would like to approach fashion, the visual narrative of the clothing industry, what kind of representation I would want. And it is fascinating. I can say this now, but, you know, way before the hashtag culture started, with like now talking about diversity, gender fluidity, LGBTQ rights, all of it is really now we don't even need to talk about it. It's so mainstream. But I'm talking about a time when all of we didn't even have Instagram accounts. And it was, I, I was talking about it all the time. I wanted to put those editorials in the magazines. Most of the times uh, they would get dismissed, but I did manage to sneak in a few that uh, I have to say changed, uh, tweaked the editorial content, not only in the magazine I was working with, but also embraced by other magazines. And this would involve very, what we take for granted now. It is, you know, I would be fascinated about how is it that we live in a country like India that is so diverse and we have so little representation of the Northeast India, right? I'm Nepali. I come from the Northeast. So for me, it was a very stark personal choice because I've lived the, this world where you become invisible, an entire region of India becomes invisible in mainstream media. And so I would do stories focusing on those areas. Now, I didn't call it diversity at that time. You know, for me, it came from a personal space where representation was important because we're all living together on this earth with all our beautiful differences. So that kind of maverick behavior, professionally, personally, was there through my entire life. Mm. So by the time I pivoted mm. from a beautiful job in Vogue and come to uh, Bali and become an activist, a sustainability activist, I still didn't think it was any different from the way I've lived my life you know, my previous life, it, I, it mm -hmm. didn't, it just felt like I was going through a momentum of change, of challenges that were already always there in my life. And so I fit in very, very easily. So there was, so my point in saying this is that it, I, it wasn't affected. It was something very organic and therefore perhaps you appreciate and recognize that I hope that there is some sort of a genuine uh, feeling and emotion that comes through my work because there was nothing that I did without my heart in it. And, and I'm not, I'm sorry if I sound pompous, but I come from a place of absolute gratefulness that, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't realize I was doing anything big, better, nothing. I just followed my heart. These organic changes just multiplied. Worlds open up, you know, the environment opens up to you. Your sensibilities uh, your intellect opens up and I was just, I just walked along a path that felt very welcoming. I didn't have to fight to make these changes. I didn't have to fight to be an activist. I'm not this gruesome person who is a doomsday prophet who's like woe to the world and I can't stand people who don't follow my journey. Not at all. 
I'm more like, if I can do it, so can you. Because, you know, I was a poster child for um, anything that I perhaps certainly am still. I'm a hedonist. I can be decadent. I love going to parties. I love enjoying my drinks. I, you know, I love the joy of life. So I'm not sitting in a pedestal, uh, you know, meditating and telling you, you could be better. Not at all. I am still, I still love to toggle uh, different um, uh, parts of my life, which is joyfully party animal, joyfully sustainability activist, complete intellectual geek or wannabe intellectual geek to, uh, you know, frivolous, funny, uh, sarcastic woman. Um, and But it came effortlessly. So I could be many units, but fundamentally, I love the environment and I love people. So that would never change. So whatever I did was done joyfully. And so for me to tell people we can all do it comes from a personal experience that uh, came from uh, accepting that I can do so many things and yet be a good human being that looks after the planet. That's amazing. Almost everyone I know, especially amongst my activism friends, they have this weird pressure, especially the young ones. We want to change the world, but we need to look the part. And there is a particular aspect that the algorithm benefits you if you become that person. Kind of scary how I see so many of my friends kind of like getting swooned into this sense of politics that's not even their own politics but it's like this is what they need to do otherwise they will either be called out or they would not get the engagement they need all they wanted to do was change change the world for a better they want to make a difference but shouldn't be this twisted it shouldn't be this complex mm -hmm. it should just be like waking up and saying that yeah i'm a good person i want to change the narrative and i'll do my best right right yeah absolutely for me the idea of sustainability over years of uh, talking about it and researching. I'm still a student. I will not even take away from um, human beings who've been in this field for 30, 40 years and working tirelessly in this field. Most of them almost invisible, only became vi uh, visible, um, uh, you know, because sustainability became such a big hot topic. And when I say hot topic, please take that with a pinch of salt because that's also become mm -hmm. a trend, right? sustainability has become a trend and so are we really engaging from within because you need it to be a personal change so i started focusing on gandhian principles precisely for that reason that if anyone was the epitome of personally imbibing the very ideals that you want to propagate then it was mm -hmm. gandhi if he wanted you to be a social political economic activist to uplift the poor he lived it. He was the example of the principles that he wanted to teach. You know, I talk so much about Gandhi and fashion, and it is an extraordinary journey of his disrobing that from wanting to be an absolute English gentleman because of the days of colonization to the man, the fakir, you know, Winston Churchill called Gandhi, that half-naked fakir because he came to England to discuss the freedom of India wearing uh, a lungi, you know, the mm -hmm. loincloth, uh, khadi lungi and bare-chested. We know, we know that image by heart, right? I For don't sure. have to even describe it. But there was a political reason for him doing that because he wanted to show he did identify with the poorest fakir. He became the fakir. And so that level of sartorial integrity, that what you wear, you know, shows the world your moral compass 
that was extraordinarily enlightening for me. And so I could talk about the principles of ahimsa, non-violence, you know, uh, in the luxury world. Suddenly it became quite uh, important and quite transparent to me that I could use all these principles that he's talked about very specifically in our fashion industry, in the luxury industry. You know, the idea of non-violence is, what is it? Ahimsa means you do no harm to anything or anybody. Right. And here we talk about, when I say anything, we have to accept that human beings are just one species of billions of species that exist on our earth. And we all have a right to exist here. And we all have our own evolution, our own evolutionary trajectory that made us all exist in the same place, in the right conditions that the earth affords us. So Ahimsa, not being, not environment is very much that encompasses every other species too. And so, you know, for me to talk about these, what could sound very esoteric and abstract, uh, but to put it in a context that people could understand and ultimately you're talking about living in a more compassionate world, in a kinder world, in a more mindful world where we are consuming as conscious human beings, not conspicuous consumption. The idea that has been indoctrinated by hyper-consumerism, especially that came from the West. And let me emphasize, these doctrines did come from the West because Eastern philosophy did not teach us that bigger is better, that you need more, that you need more and more, faster, not fewer. All these things are taught to us by very, very consumerist agendas that came from very affluent countries, especially into developing nations in Asia and the Indian subcontinent. So I thought it was very important to uh, reimagine and invoke these ideals at a time when we need it most. We know the degradation that's taking place because I work in fashion, so all my examples are pretty much based in fashion, but now we don't even talk about just fashion, right? Because we talk about biodiversity, that everything that exists in this world is being led astray because of consumerism. So it can be everything from how we are doing monocrops, you know, whether it's avocado farming in Mexico, it's palm trees for palm oil in in Indonesia, uh, to cotton in India, where thousands and thousands of farmers have already committed suicide because cotton farming, because it became a monocrop, has just degraded the land and they don't own that property anymore and what have you. It's a long narrative deck of, of environmental degradation that is related to everything that we do. If you, if cotton is not being farmed, then you perhaps would not have your clothes because almost 80 to 90% of our clothes are made from cotton. So the plight of the farmers so far away in India is very much something that we should be concerned about because it does touch you directly. Um, so, you know, to be able to look at things holistically. So I may have started off from the idea that fashion is what I will address because of our consumerist behavior with fast fashion and what have you. The more you delve into it, you see the connectivity of if it's fashion, that's a problem. The reason fashion is a problem is they take up too much water. So people have problems because they don't have drinking water because a lot of that water is going to very high resource driven um Farming, which again brings cotton into the picture. 
right? Or that dyes from the fashion uh, factories are going into our soil and degrading our fruits and our trees and the drinking water where our children can't go and play in the river now because they're so polluted. It has got everything to do with everything. This, <clears throat> the biodiversity um, is almost sort of goes against what we learned in biology. You know, the Darwinian principles that only the fittest survive, um, assuming that only the strong will survive when nature has shown us that everything exists according to the, that their own neighbor. So everything, your plants, your, your bamboo flourishes most. Bamboo trees flourish when there are other crops that are growing naturally. The papaya tree has to grow next to it. The banana tree has to grow next to it. And they thrive collectively. Interconnectedness in nature is what we see all around, that we are a whole, not just a unit. And so just talking about fashion in isolation became quite redundant. When we talk about fashion and the degradation that it has brought in, then you talk about natural resources. You, so it's not only just consumer behavior. It is how we are pillaging the land that actually elements in uh, our environment that actually need to coexist for it to flourish. Right. Right. Yeah. Everything is harmoniously interconnected, goods and the bads. And it is like a swindle down effect that kind of goes down from one place to another. Absolutely. And why do we talk so much about what's wrong with the world? The story that we are telling ourselves in the generation, as we are the storytellers of yeah. the generation, is that what are we doing about it? And where do we see the world? So I think the most important question of this entire podcast is, uh, as Bandana Tiwari and being uh, such a huge part of sustainability mm. across India and Asia, I want to know where does Bandana see the possibility of 2121? How mm. and what shall we do to lead to the possibility of 2121 being the world that Bandana Tewari wants to see? Right. Wow. That's one hell of a question, Mukul. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm quite certain that I'm not well equipped to give any kind of profound answer. So I'm going to keep it as personal as I can because I do believe, uh, believe in personal change for collective change. I believe in social responsibility that comes from individual responsibility that the change has to start from my own heart and then we sort of exude it to the world for collective change. Because um, if we want to envision a new world, we can't keep pointing our finger and saying, oh, the government has to change. Oh, the policies have to change. Oh, yes, they all have to. There's no doubt. But you need to point that finger inward and say, what am I changing within? Because mm -hmm. this world is made of uh, human beings. So we are all units in a whole. So that change has to be affected from an individual level. So that uh, said, how I envision the world is, especially given that we live, we've, we are living through COVID times and with so many realizations and that we thought this one world was one big whole. In many ways, of course, I believe in that, right? But we are also beautiful because we are different in different regions. So for the longest time, the entire world was homogenized and globalized, and we were all made into this, got, taken into this gray zone where everyone has to consume the same things. Everyone has to look the same. So the idea of like, look at the world around us, the sneaker, the jeans, the hoodie is almost a, univer a universal 
dress code of the world. And there is where the problem lies because then when we start forgetting how beautifully different we are, that's when we start disrespecting indigenous cultures. Then we disrespect our regional differences that make this world so vibrant and diverse. And when we do that, then we undermine the power of culture and storytelling that comes from different parts of the world. So I would love to hear what the Mexican narrative is, which is so different from the mm -hmm. Indian narrative. I would love to hear what the Peruvians have to say, you know, what Native um, Americans have to say. The, the, this dense, deep, beautiful differences that we share, the differences should be in our storytelling and how we de uh, define culture. What is common is humanity. So moving forward, I hope we learn to celebrate our differences, bask in each other's cultural regionality, and do not pretend that culture doesn't matter, that these beautiful storytelling that comes from our ancestors, our mothers, our fathers, our grandparents, that they should be kept alive, and they come alive in the way we will appreciate the artisanal goods, how things are made by hand, how... Uh, techniques, and we live in Bali, have been passed from generation to generation, creating flourishing artistic and aesthetic trade. So that is something I believe perhaps will happen because we can't travel that much anymore. You know, the whole supply chain, especially in the fashion industry, has just come, you know, came tumbling down. There was a time when we were buying a shirt where the cotton comes from Bangladesh, the stitching happens in India, or the embroidery happens in India, the buttons come from China, it's assembled in Milan, you know, for a T-shirt that you uh, will pay, you know, $2.99, it would have traveled to five countries. And how the hell is that cheap? So that's because the way we were trading in these goods is absolutely inhumane. How can it possibly be that cheap? So now with COVID, this, the system has disrupted. So we are looking at what is made in my neighborhood? What is made in my region? You know, how can I support local trade? Can I consume the culture and the provenance of where I stand? Um, so I think that level of ownership of where you stand, the land that you stand on is very important. And I hope that it will keep developing as we move, move forward many years from now. Wow, Bandera, that's one hell of a grand idea. I love that. I think the reason why I, I travel and I've curated a life and career around travel is because of seeing diversity at play and at work. Architecture, food, ideas, uh, life philosophy, people, civilization, ethnicities, the beauty of all this, the diversity that that is carried in so many unique ways and unique ideas, the mythologies of human greatness. I love that. We usually celebrate or post diversity values from right. our ancestors, but I would love to imagine what each civilization yeah. would bring to this table of future possibilities. I'm excited about future. I'm, I'm, I'm excited too. And, you know, right now, the big conversation about the metaverse and it sounds deathly and that we're all going to become robots. And But I also think the, the use of technology in the coming years, I mean, it, it can be, as we've already seen, harnessed for a more sustainable world, then technology has and is playing a huge role in the choices that we make that will be more sustainable than it has been recently. Uh, there's a great project that everyone should 
uh, just dip into out of sheer curiosity. It's called the Venus Project um, by an architect engineer, and he envisions this world. Technology plays one of the most important roles to create a sustainable world in the way we create cities, the urban planning that happens, that takes into ag- takes agriculture, brings it to your doorstep. So all these things that we talk about today, which is like vertical farming, and you see all these extraordinary innovative buildings in the world that are growing their crops along the walls of which they within which they live, you know, these were all propositions that were made many years back. And now with technology developing this fast, I do feel optimistic that if harnessed in the right way, technology can bring such solutions um, to the way we consume. So I, I find this narrative very interesting to talk about because the possibilities of technology doing good is immense. People get frightened by the possibilities of being in a sustainable world, which again, the Venus Project highlighted a lot for me, seems uh, very optimistic. So I like to focus on that as opposed to, you know, the the death signals that are coming uh, from the world being taken over by, you know, the new technocrats being entrenched in culture of difference and the respect of difference, knowing that culture can be different, but humanity is common on one spectrum and then going into this world of technology and innovation um, and seeing what can be developed that don't harm the environment, that, that if we can balance that, I think that would be wonderful. And I hope I see that, or rather, in my dreams, because I won't be alive for that, uh, in a hundred years, that human beings are able to toggle that in a beautiful equilibrium that makes the environment blossom further. Wow, that's pearls of wisdom. I'm really excited about seeing how things unfold, especially through Bandana's eyes. Bandana, thank you so much for being part of this conversation and actually sharing <laughs> the dream of beautiful things that's about to happen to this planet. I'm super hopeful and your narrative of focusing on the good for the good to grow is just what I wanted for this morning. Thank you very much. And as we sign off, I'm going to leave you with what Mahatma Gandhi said. We need to be the change that we want to see in the world. So we need to take personal ownership about how we live our lives day to day. I take that word really seriously from you and from Gandhi. So (laughs) yeah, that was Vandana Tiwari. And thank you so much for listening in and tuning into this incredible conversation.